go halfway around the world, but as you probably know, you don't have to go halfway around the world to meet Buddhists. And uh, these Buddhist temples from the uh, top left to the right and down are in uh, Philadelphia, Denver to the top right, and Louisville, uh, not 10 miles away. Uh, Buddhist temple uh, near you and your neighborhood. But we are going to take a journey. I think when I uh, first went to Thailand many years ago, I was uh, sort of a mystique about a land which is Buddhist. And it's uh, enchanting. And it's uh, compelling at first. And then you begin to find out what it's really like. And I think that some, some of us who have gone to the East or in different parts of the world that are influenced by, by Buddhism and Confucianism, we might have felt like Paul when he visited Athens and saw all of the idols. And then he wrote, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And so uh, the backdrop of this talk will be this verse uh, from Paul and his uh, little speech his exposition before the Athenian people. Um, Matthew, would you stand up? This is Dr. Matthew Coe, and he'll be uh, providing the Confucian uh, aspect of this talk a little bit later on. Uh, this is my family from about a year ago. Kevin uh, to the left and Nathan to the right, and my wife, Wani, and me when we visited Thailand uh, just about a year ago. So this is what we'll be looking at today, uh, worldview, Buddhism, Confucianism, summary and response, and uh, want to leave lots of time for any questions, comments that you may have. <coughs> so what is a worldview? We look at a worldview as a framework or a set of fundamental beliefs through which we view the world and our calling and future in it. And uh, worldview is very important for us as Americans to understand the, the worldview of people who are leading the country has changed dramatically over the last generation. How people view the world, how people view God, uh, it's changing. And so we want to we want to have a sense of how we look at the world, how our belief in God, a Creator God, changes who we are, what we believe, and uh, what we do. And that's what we're looking at. So what are some, some of the questions that worldview asks? It asks, what is the nature of the world around us? Did it evolve? Many believe that, and many believe that if you don't believe that, then uh, you're not a scientific person. You're not a modern person. Uh, was it created? Is it orderly or chaotic? Is it subjective or objective? What is a human being? Where do we come from? Where do we go? Are we just a highly complex machine, or are we something different? What happens to a person at death? Are we reincarnated, like the Buddhist worldview would have us believe? Um, is there extinction or transformation, or what happens to us at death? And what is the meaning of human history? Is it cyclical? Does it have an end? What is that end? And when we're looking at a worldview, these are the questions we ask, and these are the questions that we have in mind um, as we uh, look at other ways of looking at life. 
I see a lot of you taking notes. Uh, that's fine. Help yourself. Uh, the, the, the Word document and the PowerPoint will both be uploaded uh, as well as this talk. As long as I put this on my lapel, they might, you might hear me a little bit better on the uh, podcast. Okay. I'd like to introduce you, before we move into the world of this man, Mr. Riep, I'd like to tell you a little bit about his life, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll revisit uh, Mr. Riep in the future. I met him when I, I first met him when I was a medical student, first went to Thailand over 40 years ago, and I met him at a clinic and um, found out that he had a story. He was not a real young man when I met him uh, over 40 years ago, but he grew up uh, as a rice farmer. Uh, His father was a rice farmer, but he was more interested in becoming a teacher. And so he he became a teacher, uh, 20s and 30s. He was a a very energetic young man. And then one day he noticed on his arm that there was a a, a blanched area. It was... um, didn't have any, it was losing pigment, and he was wondering what's going on, and it didn't, didn't hurt or anything, so he just ignored it. And then later on, he found out that that spot was, was numb, didn't have any feeling there. And then later on, he had this pain that was running down his arm, and then his hands uh, began to come up like this, and then like this. And he had no idea what was going on. And he was still living at home. He wasn't married. His parents were worried about him. Um, And then he had this tremendous pain. And I first met him at a a clinic um, just in the middle of nowhere in central Thailand. And uh, later on, not right away, but later on down the road, uh, this is what his hands look like. And most of you know what the diagnosis is, and we'll come back to that a little bit later on. But he was in a dilemma. In the mid-1950s, 1960s, he had nowhere to go. The the Buddhist temples couldn't help him. There were no hospitals within 50 to 100 miles. He had been put out of his house because uh, this family was worried that what he had, uh, that everybody might get. And so at a very young age, he became a social outcast. Very sad. Well, let's look at the worldview of Mr. Reips. We actually came to call him Uncle Reip. We all loved him very much. Um, but what was the worldview of the people around him, of, of Mr. Reip himself and his family? Just what is Buddhism? Siddhartha Gautama was born in 1563 and lived to 483. So if you're thinking of the Old Testament, probably the time of the Jewish exile, if you want to time these events. And he was born into a life of wealth and privilege in northeast India, not too far from Nepal. And he was protected inside the palace. He had everything that anybody could imagine. But one day he was, he was just yearning to get outside. He wanted to see what the world was like. And in a very short period of time, he saw the realities of old age, sickness, and death. And he was shocked. He didn't know that the world out there was like that. And so he 
ultimately left the palace dressed like a beggar and he went out to contemplate and meditate as to what was going on in the world and what was wrong with it. He wasn't happy with the religious system of the day, which of course was Hinduism. And I know in another talk today, uh, we know Cha is going to be talking to you about the worldview of Hinduism. And so he began to think about, um, he was in turmoil, realizing that extreme poverty was no good. Extreme wealth hadn't helped anybody and hadn't helped him. And so he began to contemplate uh, what the middle way would look like, one of the central tenets of Buddhism. And so after the 49th day, he was considered to have become enlightened, and he was called the Buddha after that. And he traveled throughout India for 45 years, teaching his new concepts. What are those concepts? We're going to look at the Four Noble Truths, leading to the Noble Eightfold Path, the Middle Way, and then ultimately to what Buddhists would call Enlightenment. This is the central doctrine of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths. And based on uh, Siddhartha Gautama's, the Buddha's observations during this formative period of time in his life. Life leads to suffering. Suffering is caused by desire and craving. Extinguish desire and follow the Eightfold Pathway. Life leads to suffering. We agree with that. Suffering is caused by desire craving. Do we believe in that? And if we do, then extinguishing that is what the Buddha said would lead to following the Eightfold Pathway and ultimately becoming enlightened. So what's the correct pathway? The correct view, outlook on life, correct intention, Speech, action, the way we live, effort, mindfulness, concentration. It's quite an order. Some people have wondered if Buddhism is uh, more of a religion or a philosophy. And there's a lot of debate about that. What do you think? The middle way that the Buddha considered early on in his life. Moderation. Not self-indulgence, not self-mortification. The middle ground, all things exist and all things don't exist. Very philosophical. And then trying to avoid the extremes. Existence and nothingness. It becomes very difficult to understand all of this. When I first went to Thailand and went to the hospital where I worked for a number of years... One of my first friends, uh, who is actually still there, Dr. Wirat, he's a pediatrician. And uh, he had become a Christian when he was a medical student up in Chiang Mai. And I said, "Uh, Wirat, you you used to be a Buddhist. Can you explain to me what you believed? And, And he couldn't. And if you meet my wife, ask her to explain what Buddhism is all about. Um, She can't explain it. And these people, they can tell you what they did. They can explain the ritual. They can talk about when their parents took them to the temple and the things that they did. But if you understand all of this, you may understand more about Buddhism than many many people who call themselves Buddhists do. And you have to see that this is a very, this is the, 
they live the practical or the worked out aspects of Buddhism. This is sort of the philosophical Buddhism. So I asked one of our uh, uh, mission leaders in Thailand, what do you think of as the essence of Thailand, as you, of uh, Buddhism as you see it practiced in Thailand? And uh, Mark said, at the bottom, making merit. The activities that all Buddhists do, no matter what country they're in, no matter where they are, and you ask, making merit in order to have good karma, or Thai would say gum, to become reincarnated well, to attain nirvana, which shouldn't be equated with heaven. It's more like nothingness, to be, to be transcended into something called nothingness. So what is, the, what is the practical aspect of Buddhism, this making of merit? This is what it looked like from the very first year that I was in language study. And uh, one of my, one of my uh, language study um, homework one day was to go to the local um, Hindu shrine and ask some of the Thai people why they were there. I was practicing my language. And uh, one, I saw one businessman. He was very well dressed despite the heat. I said, sir, why are you here? And he said, this makes me feel good. It brings me peace while I'm at work at, during the day. So I come here and I meditate and I make merit uh, during my lunch hour. And so karma means action, work. It's a very legalistic, work out your salvation kind of religion in order to break the hold of karma or fate and reincarnation. And this is what it looks like in different forms. Most of these pictures are in Bangkok or in other cities uh, throughout Thailand. And if you go to uh, Burma, Japan, Cambodia, different parts of China even today, uh, Laos, you will find uh, what looks like this. This is on one of the beach resorts in Thailand, giving uh, monks rice early in the morning. The monks don't say thank you. If they said thank you, then the making of the merit would have been uh, reciprocated, and then there wouldn't have been any merit making. Jostics, taking flowers, offering these to, to whom? Well, we find out that Buddhism later on is really a very syncretistic religion. Because there is no concept of a god, they reach out to whatever gods or goddesses in the area because everyone is really looking for some higher power in their lives. Making merit. Now, when a young child is growing up, especially a boy, his Buddhist parents will try to get him inducted as a novice into the local temple in order to take instruction. And when a young, young child does this, the child is making merit for his own life, but also is making merit for his parents. And so you begin to note the close social and family ties and what is done. And finally, at a Thai funeral. This is what they chant, and this is what is written on, the, um, on those leaves that the monks uh, are holding. He's gone, and he won't be back. He sleeps and he won't wake up. There is no resurrection. There is no escape. 
One of the things that shocked me when I first went to East Asia as a new missionary on my way to Thailand and Singapore, there was a funeral that was held behind where we were staying. And there was chanting and there was moaning and there were people hired to mourn and to have processions having to do with uh, getting rid of the evil spirits going on for five, six, seven evenings. Very, very sad event. No hope, no future. And so this was what the Dalai Lama said not too long ago. We must take direct responsibility for our own spiritual lives and rely upon nobody and nothing. If another being were able to save us, surely he would have already done so. It is time, therefore, that we help ourselves. And that's a very good summary statement of what Buddhism is all about. We talked about syncretism. Uh, the largest shrine having the most power in downtown Bangkok is this Hindu shrine at the uh, Jaupa Erawan, the place that was bombed in Bangkok about six months ago, the very same place. So what are the results of the Buddhism that we're talking about? Uh, Thai people see loyalty in their own lives to their king, their country, their religion, and family. Very important, non-negotiable. And so, if so what happens if someone thinks of becoming a Christian? They're seen as being disloyal or a traitor. Very difficult. And this social setting, religious setting, for a Thai person to become a Christian. To be Thai is to be Buddhist. To be Lao is to be Buddhist. To be Burmese is to be Buddhist. And so on. This is where the Buddhists live in East Asia, primarily. Uh, a billion Buddhists wait to know about Jesus Christ. I'd like to ask Matthew Coe, a good brother, past president of MSI, and now working spiritual formation for uh, our people who are in uh, creative access countries in East Asia. Thanks, Neil. Uh, I grew up a Taoist, Buddhist, confusion, very, very confused. I, as a young child, I followed my grandmother to the Buddhist monasteries and would worship to seek after a higher God. I went to church to uh, study English. It was the ESL class uh, using the English Bible. I went there for the ulterior motive of studying English. And of course, the Bible spoke to my heart. I became a Christian about age 16, 17. It wasn't one point in time. It was a transformation that continues to take place. Uh, so for me, I grew up from that background, but a huge amount of syncretism. Uh, I went to Thailand for two mission trips, and I was sure God's calling me to Thailand. And then I went to India with my church uh, after I finished my med school, uh, and did six, six weeks there, and I was sure that God is calling me to Madras to work in the Christian hospital. And then I went to Taiwan, and I was absolutely sure this is exactly where was God is calling me. I was a very confused confusion. Christian, and you know, in, in filial piety, we are to be obedient to our Father. So I import that to my Christian religion, and our faith is not a religion, it's faith in Christ, in our holy triangle God. And I thought, you know, to be a good son means I'm obedient to my father and my mother. I study hard to be a doctor or a lawyer, or, and so on. So I have to be loyal and obedient and filial to our Heavenly Father. So 
to be a good Christian, I start off as a Sunday school teacher. If I'm better, I be a, a junior pastor. If I'm even better, I be a missionary. As though it's a hierarchy. So it's pure syncretism. The, the Asian people are very pragmatic people, and uh, you know, I, most of us. You talk to us. We there are a few of us who are good philosophers. We have a long history of philosophy. Chinese history is 5,000 years. You can talk to us about Laozi and so forth. Uh, no, that's not where most of us are going. We are all very pragmatic people. Whatever works is what's important. Chairman Mao says, whether it's a black cat, white cat, it doesn't matter so long it catches the rat. So that's the outcome of communism, which has fundamental basic, basic foundations of Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, undergirding the social norms in China among the ethnic Chinese. And yet, what practically works is what takes place. So if you think about Confucianism, I, I don't think I want to discuss so much philosophy. I want to deal with some pragmatic, practical issue. I want to narrow down to work. And most of us here are medical missionaries, and I trained as a surgeon. I started working as a surgeon. So I share with you a little bit of my own syncretism that I don't discern enough, what confused part of my own understanding of religion. Just by the way, say Korea, Korea has a, a huge, a wonderful Christian movement through work of medical mission, and the Koreans uh, are really uh, teaching us how to pray. You heard about the prayer mountains in Korea. Some of us uh, who study this will say, is there an element of shamanism being imported into its Christian faith? Now, prayer is of central importance in our Christian faith, in our life, the word, the scripture, and prayer, and uh, the fellowship. And yet, Koreans get up at 5 a.m. to pray. The Chinese will have a deep spirituality. But it takes a process to understand what's really going on in our desires. So let me come back to work. And this is uh, Chinese uh, uh, values looking at... Uh, so I, I want to focus on tent making, creative access mission. We go as workers, and as workers, we go cross-culturally to uh, Asian countries to work. Most of us are either go there to be a doctor or a nurse or a nurse practitioner and so forth. So in the place of work, that's where the gospel is communicated. Few of us are going to sit down to discuss philosophy with you, but it's the practical day-to-day -day experience of work that the Christian life is lived out. For me, this is a personal privilege. I, I struggle in my own uh, work. I think the confusion are mostly humanist. Uh, most of us here will have sufficient background. It's, it's really a way of life. It gets confused and merged into religions of some form. And the work ethic gets immersed into the way we interact with them. So as workers, when you go as a teacher, a doctor, or so on, how in your work you communicate the good news. So the basic values is respect for community and authority. All of this, I guess, uh, is fairly similar here. Uh, Confucianists are moralists, humanists, and they are good. There's, there's a lot of compatibility with Christianity, and so it's easy to slip into syncretism. Am I using lingo that is, that's okay here? I'm sorry if I fall asleep. I'm jet lag. If I'm sorry if I'm using terms that are, that are Chinese, I... Yeah. So there are some basic codes of personal behavior, which I, I don't have to read them. You'll be in the slides. Uh, so we, we search for truth. And you know, when someone communicates with us the good news, uh, uh, it's always something important, good, that we want to bring to gain control of ourselves, to be a better person, to be an ideal man. So the ideal Confucian 
is to be an ideal man. The word is Junzi. Uh, so the, the idea of a man being a good man is in all these character. You find them in scripture, so that all these areas of uh, similarity. So, see, so look at Matthew Ricci, who was one of the initial uh, uh, Benedictine uh, missionaries into China, had a tremendous impact in China. This is about 400 years ago. When he first went to China, how does he identify with a religious person? And he's, he learned the language, he learned the culture, he studied the Confucian textbooks, he studied the Analects and so forth. But when he first began, he thought a religious man is a Buddhist monk in, in the China's day 400 years ago. So he dressed as a Buddhist. But the Chinese common folks despised the monks because they were beggars. So people would avoid him because you know, here is this white man coming dressed as a monk. Subsequently, he decided that the right way for an ideal person who is a good man would be a Confucian scholar. So, Matteo Ricci dressed as a Confucian scholar. And he had inroads into right to the courts of the, uh, of the, uh, in, in China because of the Confucian ethic. And China now is trying to bring Confucianism as an ethic to ground its moral basis. It's a difficult job to ask. Any of you been to Confucian institutes? Okay, China, this is kind of soft power. China have built Confucian institutes all over the world, a lot in Africa, and uh, they are using it to communicate their way of thinking. But, you know, it is, we are aware of this, the moral foundation is deeply shaken through communism, and there are huge moral issues within China. So they are trying to bring Confucianism as a basis for it. But, you know, it's not working well or easily. Let me just take this a bit of philosophy. So, Shiye, Nongye, Gongye, Shangye. Ye is the uh, occupation. So, in the theme of work, so this is the order of work. Confucianism is a hierarchical system, and I shared with you the hierarchy of, uh, of the family structures and so on. So, the ideal work is occupation. This is the uh, occupation of a farmer, the occupation of the uh, manual workers, and these are the uh, business people. So in the traditional Confucian mind, the businessmen are the people who make money from the poor, they're the worst of the lot. And those who have a good job to serve society are ideal occupations. So when you go, what is your motivation for work? When you come as a, a Christian professional, you know, missionaries, you're a tent maker, most of the Asians that encounter you will be, ask, will be asking subconsciously, what is your motivation for coming? I guess some of us uh, know it's love, and maybe our desires are not clear deeply ourselves. What really motivates us to go cross culturally and missionary? We, we want to be motivated by the passion of God, for God's love for His people and the world. And this is that love message that gets communicated. And so therefore we study the language and the culture to try and communicate the good news, the message of love. But they assess us, what is our motivation? And the primary motivation would be money, or sex, or power. These are the sins that drives the world and people. So the same problems encounters us. So it, in this uh, dealing with the heart's desire, the motivation for education. So the Confucian person motivation for education is to be a better man, to be more knowledgeable. So to study the Bible, as I did study English, as I study, I want to gain more knowledge of the Bible, is to be a better man. But you, we know this, this doesn't take us close to the Lord. It only puffs us up. It, it makes us a noisy gong without love. So, we, 
we therefore have to think about what motivates our desire for work. And I, as in my own journey in the phlegmatic way, I begin to realize that it's in our experience of God's grace, it's in our living our life faithfully. When they see how we dealt with pain, brokenness, struggles in our life, that the good news gets communicated. And when we want to deal with uh, ideologies of Asian cultures, we can go round and round and round. It's just like, you know, we want to find out money, study the real money. Uh, you can investigate all the fake counterfeit monies and all the fake counterfeit worldviews. It doesn't get us far enough. Confucianism, Buddhism, these are very confused and there's so much postmodernism, so much of the globalized world that's affecting the way they are thinking practically. So deal with work and what motivates them and deal with the motivation of the heart as a means to communicate the gospel. But I, I begin to realize in my own desire to, to learn because of the desire for education, which is Confucian ethic, and also in the American culture, learning is good, uh, and calling, a motivation for being a missionary. Am I a missionary or am I a doctor? Am I a professional? What is my self-identity? Uh, becomes a means of grace where I begin to grow. Did I go to China as a surgeon to share the good news or am I a missionary to teach the disciple? So there are some of these parts it became a schizophrenia for me. Is it more important to spend more time to heal the sick, to provide for the poor or do I spend the time taking them through a series of uh, on the Gospels and study the Bible together? So what is my identity? Is it a missionary call or a professional call? And this is our implications that come from our work ethic. I, I, I think I'll skip some of this. So there's a crisis of love. Now, that's where I'm trying to bring together the integration. We talk about Confucianism, love as Ren, or I just translate as Zen. But in our Christian faith, love, the agape, so there's a crisis of love and therefore work done in love that comes from the agape love of self-giving, of kenosis, of emptying ourselves, can then communicate the love that's not selfish. Or crisis of faith, crisis of hope, but work done in love, faith and hope. So I, I'm going to leave more questions rather than answers for you. As you know, I, I kind of hop different places. But three key areas, working in Asia of in my case China, there is we com we articulate a theology of evangelism, conversion and the church through the way we work. I, I want to deal with it practically as opposed to dealing with the philosophies of Confucianism. So as we work as Christian professionals, as medical people, we are actually relating our work to the way we look at evangelism. We think about friendship evangelism. I want to be your friend because I want you to be a Christian. So if you don't want to be a Christian, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Is that evangelism? Is that really love? But if they see that's my motivation, I fail to love with sincerity, with authenticity. So am I, what, what is the evangelism that, I, that I'm articulating in the way I'm relating to people? Work as it relates to the theology of conversion. You know, we, I have a, some, we have a black and white understanding mostly in the world. You know, one safe, always safe. We are... Uh, most of the Asian church are very Calvinist influenced and there's a, such a strong theology of, of Paul that we, we fail to take responsibility of our life. 
Is conversion one point in time, or is there a transformation that continues? Is there a path of sanctification that continues to take place in our lives? I'm studying in uh, Asbury Theological Seminary, partly because I realize how much I need to pay attention to sanctification. Uh, I, I'm saying something dangerous now. I realize there are unconverted part of me because of my upbringing, because of my family origin, conversion isn't just my personal salvation. It has to do with my family. My parents are not converted, are not Christians yet. A part of me is not converted. Therefore, I, which means my family, is not converted. So conversion isn't just individual. There is a definite personal component, I believe, in personal faith, personal salvation in Christ, my relationship with God, and yet there is a communal aspect to understanding conversion. So how do I work in relationship to to transformation that occurs in the whole family. I think the African culture is very much the same. And work is related to a theology of the church. Uh, if we begin to separate, for the Chinese are also very platonist, we, we begin to work the material thing as separate, sacred and secular separation. So if we begin to see the church as the people of God in all workplaces, in offices, in schools, in hospitals, where the workplace is the church, in diaspora, the church out in the work world being sought and light, then we communicate the good news through our being in the work world. So I just kind of gave a, a, a broad stroke on thinking about our work as physicians or healthcare people as it relates to Confucian culture as opposed to studying Confucianism. I, I think what's probably more important is to study from where we are how the scripture communicates in the worldview of the local people. Okay, I'll come get back to uh, Neil. We have questions later. Thank you very much, Matthew. So, for me, it's very confusing. For Matthew, it's very confusing. And the part of this uh, session I hate, I, I like the least is question and answers because I don't think I'm going to have any answers. But as you try to process what's going on, um, there are very attractive things about the Eastern religions. There's a sense of uh, humility. Uh, one of the things that impressed me so much about Thailand is the hospitality, is the reaching out. Um, and we're, we're drawn to these things. But, we, but when we think of um, the spiritual void that exists and the billion people who don't know Christ, what's our, what's our response? Uh, one person has said, since Buddhism denies the existence of God, Christian theism is incomprehensible illusion to the Buddhist mind. Buddhism can't think of a God that it can refer to as a creator. And so what's our, what's our response? What can we do? And one of my language teachers very early on in my time in Thailand said, uh, don't use John 3.16. It usually doesn't work. Because the God of John 3.16 isn't a God that any Buddhist or Confucian would relate to. Uh, creator God is incomprehensible. They don't know anything about it. And love? Love is mostly, uh, the concept is mostly a sexual love. It's a, it's a love that takes advantage. 
It's not the love that we're thinking of. And so you've got to define almost every term, and that's not a good approach. But there are some good approaches, like uh, using suffering as a starting point, even the suffering servant of Christ. Uh, Some scholars have tried to use Ecclesiastes, everything is meaningless, and then come to the core of where meaning is. Uh, One of uh, my wife's and my pastors in Bangkok uh, came to Asbury and studied and did a paper on Thai meekness, or what we would call humility, that when we go as missionaries, we shouldn't go as a person having all the answers, but someone who's willing to listen and to build the kind of friendship and relationship that Matthew was talking about. And use that as a bridge, not just to convert somebody, but to be a genuine friend. And to pray that they would come to see uh, Jesus through the relationship that we have. Well, very briefly, uh, Uncle Rhea did go to a leprosy clinic uh, that was part of a hospital ministry in central Thailand. And uh, he wasn't really interested in God, but when he was there, he met other leprosy patients. Some of them had become Christians. And what he found out was that these people were not only willing to help him rehabilitate his deformed hands and deformed feet, but there was something spiritual there that he wanted. And he found something else. There was a community there that he had lost. And these people would read the Bible together. They would share together. And then some of the missionary nurses and therapists would say, so uh, you people who... Um, are now leprosy patients, what did you used to do? What were, the, what were your skills? What can you do? And, the, and some of them found out that they, used to, that they used to do something that they could do again in a different way. And Uncle Rehab found out that he had the gift of music. And he began to compose indigenous Thai Christian songs, one of the first persons in Thailand, first people in Thailand, to not use the, the gospel songs and the hymns that the missionaries had taken in, but indigenous Thai songs with Thai words and Thai lyrics and the, and the tones that are natural to uh, Thai. And so he be, I can't tell you his, his whole story right now, but he became like a rock star. And there are churches throughout Thailand that are using the songs that he composed, which are true Thai Christian songs. So we think, what's our response? How do you reach out? And, and I think that medical missions is one of the most comprehensive outreach to people who find Christianity totally incomprehensible. Because they not only have to hear about the gospel when it's spoken, but they can see it in action. And Uncle Reap and other leprosy patients that I know have told my wife and me that No one had touched them for decades or taken care of their ulcers. And it was this kind of thing that was so transformational in these people's lives that they could see Christ through the care when with their own family and the temple and the people around them, there was only what? Fear. Fear that they would get infected or fear of whatever. Very different approach to the world. Very different worldview. You see suffering... You try to retreat from it. A Christian sees suffering and what does he or she do? Go after it. Find a cause for it. Do something about it. And bring Christ into the the situation. And so here are ways in which we can pray for Buddhists, uh, for rulers, for truth, grace and truth. 
that we may communicate clearly for God to prepare hearts to understand the gospel, that Buddhist background believers will remain strong, and that is difficult. Many say, I want this God, and they go back to their family and their community, and it's tough, and many of them don't last. So this is our um, Matthews and my presentation of these worldviews. Halfway around the world, billions of people. What's your response, and do you have any questions? Not guaranteeing any answers, but uh, what kinds of questions do you have? Yes. Uh, I can't hear you. Sorry. Thank you. I, uh, there's a loud fan back here, so I hope you heard that better than I can. But uh, your daughter is in Japan. There's a park where it says, please do not kill yourself here because suicide rate is very high and people are driven to distraction. And I think the main uh, point of her uh, comments were that um, Buddhist background people and the, the Buddhism in, in, in Japan is very different from Buddhism in southeast China but still a form of Buddhism, that uh, shame is very strong and there's no really concept of forgiveness. Uh, in Thailand, uh, forgiveness is seen as a weakness. You don't forgive because, therefore, you are minimizing yourself and raising someone else. We see that forgiveness is strength because you need to be a fairly strong person to be able to uh, show grace. And I think forgiveness and grace are right alongside of each other in, in, in identifying the essence of what Christianity is all about. And uh, it's, I think it's easier for us to preach grace than it is to live grace. And yet the Thai and Buddhist background and Confucian background peoples uh, will, will sense it and feel it if you live it rather than uh, being able to understand it if you preach it or try to talk about it. Thank you very much for your comments. Yeah. Yes. Lisa. My question pertains to um, asking somebody about their faith. 
I've encountered numerous times in asking um, maybe the college age, what is it that you believe, how does it work? Um, what is your faith and what does it look like and how does it live? And so many of them say, we don't know, our parents don't tell us. And so I say, well, can you ask them? Well, that's considered mildly disrespectful. So, like, how do you, how do you help them engage or is it... How do you engage with that dilemma, I guess? Yeah, uh, Lois is asking, um, you ask a question of a Buddhist or Confucian person and ask them, what do you believe? Uh, and they really don't understand it, and, they, and they, don't, they haven't really been taught what it's all about from their parents. So um, that was my experience in Thailand. Uh, not many Buddhists understand Buddhism and could tell you uh, that there's a sinha, the five commandments. You don't, you don't kill, you don't drink, you don't steal, and those, those, those things. They know that because they've, they've repeated that over and over again. But I think that you're asking them what they believe, what they think, and how they feel is very important. Whether they can give you uh, really good, coherent answers. The fact that you're not trying to tell them what you believe, but you're still getting the response for them, I think that's still very important. That we're that we're reaching out to them and trying to build a bridge, re- regardless of whether that's the response or not. I think that's really a great approach. The the listening and trying to understand where they are, and then hoping that one day they'll ask, "Why are you here?" and you know, uh, "What do you believe?" and um, I've been told that people in China are more, are more likely to ask expats like us. Um, we, we don't happen to call ourselves missionaries there. It's a restricted country. But um, the Chinese are more likely to ask, why are you there? Because they're a little bit more forward. Uh, the Thai uh, and Lao people are not quite as likely to ask that question. But you're still building bridges, and I think that's great. Questions? Uh, yes, Isaac. What's your answer since it's a restricted country? Oh, that, uh, what's my answer? Why are you here? Uh, What do you say? So what do you say when you're living in a restricted access country like China or Vietnam or Laos and someone asks you? You know, if you're with that person in a coffee shop, Starbucks or somewhere, and you're one-on-one, you can tell them about the Lord. You can share your faith. They've, They've started it. Just make sure they're not someone who's planted who's trying to get you in trouble. <laughs> if you know them and have a relationship and you think that they're sincere, then, then you can share uh, your life. Um, maybe not be too outspoken early on about who Jesus is, but maybe sort of try to guide them into a different worldview, a different way of looking at life and a creator God. Um, a number of Chinese people that I've talked to from the States, people from the mainland that I've Ask their stories. Uh, why are they here? How did they become Christians? And many of them said, uh, someone told me that there was a creator God, and somehow I knew that that was true. Even though in China they're told that we were descended from monkeys, and there is no God. There are many people, they have, something's wrong with that. But they don't know what to do with it until someone tells them about God. And that's exciting. Keith. Yes. Question for Matthew. Regarding uh, Confucianism, uh, we know that um, Confucianism has holds a high uh, Confucianism has a high regard for education as a value in your life, right? And so, 
Uh, sorry, Confucianism has a high uh, regard for education as a value in their, in their world view, right? Yep. And maybe somebody can correct me, but in, in the late, last half of the 20th century, the evangelical culture, the evangelical American culture, has often retreated from the academia. And, and, and often I've been told that you know, the person who wants to study, for instance, in medicine, like all of us here, or, or some healthcare professionals, and, and we're often told by you know, our pastors, oh, to do ministry, get out of education and do ministry. What is, as a Christian and coming from a Confucianist context, what is your response to that issue? Wow. I'm not sure I'm going to have right answers, but, you know, I had uh, four masters related to surgery. I have a degree in marketplace theology, and I'm doing a doctor of ministry. I'm having more degrees than the thermometer. <laughs> well, uh, in mission, it's like playing chess in some way. We, uh, I try to be a few steps ahead. I knew that if I were to work in China, they're going to respect the credentials. They're going to respect age, they're going to respect the credentials. So I'm going to have, uh, I'm not unclear of my motivations for education, but it's going to work for me in China. So the education, so if you have a PhD, you are far ahead to get some visas and appointments than if you have a bachelor degree. So, I mean, those are reality and facts that they're going to first size you up about who you are, what's your status in society, how much education you have, this will happen. So there are sinful issues of desires and of the of, uh, uh, way we look at a person, but these are the realities I feel I have to face and to deal with. And I think I can only address at a personal level and within my family, what are my motivations for education. And actually, what are my motivations for sending my children to college, for sending my children to master's degree, and so on and so forth? So I can only do it at a personal level. I don't think I, I could. I know the Lord called us to love our neighbor. Jesus loved the world. I'm only called to love my... I can't change the world. That's how I view it. But I want to come back to the one question on forgiveness. Uh, I have a communist party. Uh, the foreign affairs chief of the province came to me and said... You are an amazing group of people. You have an American, you have a Japanese, you have a Korean, and you have a Chinese. You get the Japanese and the Korean and the Chinese to work together in one team, and they work together. We as communists couldn't do it. How do you do it? So the issue of forgiveness. She observed us for years. She said, at first I thought you were like fairies from far away land, and you are out of this earth. And then as I work with you for years, I notice you quarrel. You even disagree with one another. You almost fought with one another. But one thing that's different with, with you than us communists, and that's what she was saying, is that you always made up. You always come, you're always united. We know we are Christians by our love, by our unity. When Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer, the key central theme was that we are one. One with the Father, Son, and Spirit. One with God. So our unity, our willingness to forgive one another is more powerful than the message that are com communicated verbally. This one organization I serve with, the key motto is your life is the message. Your life 
is the message. So for us going to Asia, which are, as I say, Asians are very pragmatic people. It's not about what you say when we ask them the question about why you believe. You no, know, we have a struggle. We stretch our head. Why do we believe? Uh, we, you know, we, we can't reason because you know, therefore we don't have our Luther, we don't have our Calvin. It, China's church history is, you know, we, we are not primarily people who sit down and think about why we believe what we are believing and, and concretize them and systematize them. In fact, the whole idea of systematic theology is very foreign in probably in, a, in African culture as in Asian culture. We, could, we need a contextual theology. So, but live your life, live forgiveness live love, live faith, live hope. I think that's the way to communicate the gospel. So as far as dealing with education, what's the reason for them getting education and so forth? Uh, I know you can go round and round and we cannot resolve the generations of expectations that goes behind. When I first wanted to be missionary, I wanted to go to Africa with my wife. My parents said, no, you can't go to Africa. And I had to be filial to my parents. And I realized they are so ethnocentric. Uh, I wish I can go back to Africa now. I, I still go. <laughs> but I have to deal with my generation since and what the uncomfortable past about, whether it be education and so forth. I hope you know, that helps you in a roundabout way I'm answering this question. One, one final question. Yeah. You have mentioned the Eightfold Path as part of Buddhism. And it seems to have a lot of similarity with the Christian ethic. Are there ways to build bridges from the Eightfold Path, or do you just get yourself in trouble by going down that route? I don't think you try to get in trouble by doing good, by doing good things. And uh, they're all uh, good values. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong there. It's just that uh, they're doing these things to uh, try to become what they want to attain to, which ultimately is reincarnation and going to nirvana. Uh, we see those things as a result of our Christian faith and how uh, and they are bringing honor and glory to the Lord. So for us, it's, it's uh, the life we live because of who Christ is. For them, it's a works righteousness to get the work of God. When we're living like that, they, they, they don't know that. You know, this is the values that, you know, they're beneath the surface. And so it takes a long time for them, uh, for them to see that this is real, that it's genuine, that you're not trying to trick them. Many Thai, many Thai Christians have said it takes about 10 years for a Thai person to become a Christian. And one lady that I worked with fought against the concept of Christianity. It never made sense to her. Even though we argued, she looked at the lives of other Thai people who had become Christians and saw that they were so totally different from everything else she had seen in her life. But that the combination of what we said and what she saw in other people's lives were what eventually led her to come to know the Lord. And again, that's the, the power of uh, medical mission ministry in an area where they see something something new and different is in their midst. And many go on with their lives as they've always lived them, and a few ask questions, why is it like this? And then later on, they want that God and they want that life. We'll close in a minute of prayer, and then we'll dismiss you. Father, we thank you so much that we have a chance to look into the lives and cultures and ways of life and worldviews of people halfway around the world. These people need you. pray that you would be working in each one of our lives to guide us as you are leading us uh, the rest of this day. And uh, we pray for Buddhists.
and we pray for their leaders, and we pray that many more would come to know you in this coming generation. Thank you for this time together. We commit it to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.